looking at the story of Noah. And one of our goals for the fall, for the fall, what we're going to be doing is that we've just been looking at the stories of Genesis. And we're just kind of walking right through. And what we found is that we're going to, as we look at Genesis 4 through 11, what's really going to dominate the story of 4 through 11 is going to be the story of Noah. And now you may or may not be familiar with Noah, but my guess is a lot of times, even if you didn't grow up in the church, even if you don't know many of the stories of the Bible, some of the stories that people will know is they'll know the story of Noah. And, And because it's a big story, right? I mean, we've asked even last week, like, why is this story in the Bible? Like, what is it, what is it doing? And what we saw last week is that Noah is this idea of, like, how do we be faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness? I think that's the, the big question, not even just with Noah, but even probably for you. Like, how do you be faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness? Because I think a lot of times what we think is we think that our, that somebody else's unfaithfulness justifies our unfaithfulness, right? And so we're only faithful to people who are faithful to us. We only act righteously towards people who act righteously to us. And so I'll ask them, like, why did you, why did you lie to them? Well, they lied to me first. I go, oh, so their, their unfaithfulness and unrighteousness justified your unfaithfulness and unrighteousness? Why did you, why did you cheat them out of money? Well, okay, okay, hold on. I didn't cheat them out of anything. I just, I took back what was already mine. I just got it back, but in a dishonest way. Well, yes, in a dishonest way, but I was just, I was just writing the wrong any way in which I needed to do it. And he goes, so, so your, their unfaithfulness justifies your unfaithfulness? But isn't there something else that we should be living to? I mean, aren't we called to be faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness? And we found last week, it's like, it's a lot of times faithfulness, it's, it's costly, it's, it's difficult. But if it were cheap and easy, then everybody would do it. Everybody would be more faithful. You'd be more faithful if it was cheap and easy. But it's not. It's difficult and hard and painful at times. And so we see this with Noah. Noah is living in the middle, in the midst of, it, it says, this, this corruption and increased violence. And we find Noah who's faithful and the story then, the story is then God is going to send the rain. Now, it's interesting when we think about the story of Noah because people think the story of Noah is, like the big story of Noah is about this big boat. Like that's the purpose of the story. Or there's these cute animals, these little cute animals that are being loaded up onto this boat. I mean, does it get any cuter than an old man with a boat and little animals loading up into it? I, I submit that it does not. And so this is why we decorate the nurseries with it, right? This is why we have the play sets for the bathtub. And not that those things are necessarily wrong, but that's just that's that's the story we tell. But is that this? We go, is that the story? We go, no, that's not the story. I mean, that's part of the story for sure. But he goes, is that the main point of the story? No, it's not the main point of the story. We found the last part the last week is the main part of the story is that the is that the the uh, the corruption and the violence was increasing, and it was increasing from Adam and Eve, and it kept on increasing, increasing until God finally said, "Now I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to answer this violence and corruption with my action." And what we find out is, is, is His judgment, which is interesting because now, as we as we look at the headlines, as we look at the news, as we look at um, you know the websites, and we, what we see now on, on everything, the headlines are what violence and corruption. And really, all, a lot of times, even our questions are from both uh, religious and non-religious, right? 
Christians and other faiths or non people of non faith. The question is, who's going to do something about this violence and corruption? How are we going to get out of this? Violence and corruption. There's this uniform, this is wrong, this is not right, but there's also this uniform, who's going to do something about it? Who's going who's to step in? And a lot of times we thought, well, this policy will, will answer the violence and corruption. This politician will answer the violence and corruption. And all that politician is going to do is probably be violent and corrupt in different ways. But that's the big question. Who will stop and who will answer this violence and corruption? And God says, I'm going to do it. And then what he's going to do is in the form of judgment. Now, it may or may not surprise you, but there's other stories of flood in other ancient texts. And then the reason why I bring this up is sometimes it freaks out Christians when they find this out. It makes them really uncomfortable. <laughs> because wait, there's, there, there are? Like, uh-huh. Yeah, there's actually other ancient texts that actually refer to a giant great flood. Now, they're going to tell the story a little bit differently, but they're, but, but they're going to tell the story of this great flood. And a lot of times it's, it's, it's a great flood that's either brought on by a god or the gods. And sometimes this freaks out Christians because what happens is, is that as we read the Bible and we go, well, this is the Bible and it tells the story of the flood. And then somebody who's coming along who wants to discredit the Bible says, did you know that there's other, there's other accounts of a flood? And I think that all that Moses did within the record, in, the, in recording Genesis was he just took that story and made it about God and about his God. That's all he did. He, he appropriated the story. And they go, oh, no. And so it's this way of discrediting the Bible. And I go, well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> one way of looking at it is that the other stories would discredit what the Bible says. But there's actually another way of looking at it, which actually is that the fact that there are other stories would, lean, would, would lend credit to the Bible, right? I mean, think if somebody told you a grand story, told you this wild story. It's a really wild story. You got about, I have a hard time believing that happened. I have a really hard time believing that happened. And then you went out about your day and then so you ran across somebody else totally separate that doesn't even know the other person but was at the same event. And they said, you'll never believe what happened today. And they'll tell you a, this story, this wild story. And you'll think to yourself, that's, I mean, there's some differences, but that's kind of what he said back over there. And I would submit to you after the second person talked to you, you'd be more likely to believe the story actually happened. Because you go, well, that's a really wild story. But now I've heard it from two sources. And if you kept on walking through your day and then a third person that was unrelated to those other two people came to you and told you the same, a similar story with some differences, but a similar story, you would think to yourself, that's crazy, but it most likely really did happen. And so the fact that we actually have these different accounts that come from different places, to me, it doesn't discredit what the Bible says. Actually, it lends validity to what the Bible says. And then we as Christians, what we believe when we say that the word of God is true we don't say that it's, it's unique in the sense where the, these stories are told nowhere else. What we say is that it's authoritative and it's correct and it's true. So where the other stories get it right is where we, the, so we see the Bible's right. And so if it matches with the Bible, then we go, yeah, we think those are the correct parts of the story. But if it's, if it's uh, incongruent with the Bible or it contradicts the Bible, we say those are probably the wrong parts of the story. And so I think it's very interesting that we get these flood stories that come along that are generally the same, that are, are some differences, but we just would hold that the Bible is the one that tells the truth. And so it's interesting, so don't be freaked out if you hear about these other, these other like, what? You can Google it when you go home, like other, other floods accounts, and they'll, they'll pop right up. So, so we get the story about uh, Noah, and what we see is that he's faithful in the middle of unfaithfulness. And how did he do it? 
Well, one, he wasn't, as we saw here last week, he wasn't surprised by it. He trusts that God sees it. I think one of our complaints to God in our culture now is like, God, do you see what's going on? This violence, this corruption, do you see it? And will you do something about it? And what, what it tells us in Genesis 6 is that he does see it. In fact, he sees everything. He sees the violence and corruption that you commit against others. He sees the violence and corruption that's committed against you. And so he sees it all. And so it says that, that one, you're not surprised by it. Two, is that you trust that God sees it. And then what we see a lot of Noah is that he just does what God asks him to do. You know, we, we haven't heard a word from, Noah hasn't said a word yet, and he's not going to say a word this morning. All, God's doing all of the talking, and it just says no, about Noah repeatedly, he just did what God asked him to do. He just did what God asked him to do. He did everything that God said to do. He did it, and that's what makes him faithful. So, with that, if you've got your Bibles, let's start in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 this morning. Then we're going to go um, through, uh, through 16. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Let me read that again. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And so... God commands him, says, I want you to, now that you build the ark, I want you to go into the ark. He says, you and all your family, for I've seen your righteousness. So not only does God see the violence and corruption among people, he also sees the righteousness of Noah. And so people are like, well, why should I be, why should I do the right thing when when nobody knows? Well, actually, God knows and God sees it. And so then we read other passages that say one day, one day, there's going to be coming a day where God is going to make all that was done in secret and all that was done in hidden and is going to bring it to the light. And we think to ourselves, oh no. But there's actually a flip side to that. That means that the, the things that you have done, the righteousness in God's eyes that you have done, like that will be brought to the light. Why? God sees them both. He brings them both into the light. And what it says here is that is that Noah and his family, that Noah was righteous. But interestingly enough, it doesn't say a lot about his family. It doesn't say that Noah and his family were righteous. What it says was, Noah was righteous, and then he said to Noah, bring your whole family, your sons and, your, your, and, and their wives, you all come. And so we go, well, what about Noah's family? God doesn't tell us, it doesn't say anything about Noah's family. And we'd have some indication later on that his family wasn't all that righteous. And so what I hear is like, what about, what about his family? Well, Noah was righteous. What about his family? Well, Noah was righteous. Think about like maybe if you, you meet a couple and the couple, you know, like uh, Andy and Lori. And you go, I really like that Andy. He's a great guy. Really great guy. What do you think about Lori? I really like Andy. Like, I mean, he's a really, a really good guy. Like, and about Laurie, like, mm, I really like Andy. I guess, and, and so your, your silence, your silence is saying something, right? And so here, we, as we see that it's the righteousness of, of Noah and that his family is saved. Now, what we have here in, in Genesis chapter 7, that his family 
is being saved at some level by the righteousness of Noah. That the righteousness of one is saving other people. And so you go, well, doesn't that sound familiar? You know, it does, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like a New Testament truth? It does sound like a New Testament truth. Where we are saved by what? By the righteousness of another. We are saved by the one. We are saved that the New Testament teaches us that we are saved. It's Jesus' righteousness that is put on to us. That's what, that's what saves us. That's what makes us right in the eyes of God. And so we go, is, is that a new concept in the New Testament? No, it's not. And a lot of times what we think about Noah is the message is go out and be Noah. Go out and be better like Noah. Go out and be more faithful like Noah. And I would say, yes, that's part of the message. But really the message is, is that Jesus is the better Noah is that the righteousness of Noah saved his family, but the righteousness of Jesus, the better Noah, is going to save the world. And so I think, like, it's, we'll never be as good as Noah, but then Jesus is the better Noah. And so the righteousness of one is going to save many. And, but we do see, actually, Noah in the New Testament. We see him in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. This is the hall of fame of faith and what it says about Noah there. says that by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so one of the big questions, so Christianity, what Christianity says is you can only be saved by Jesus. It's, it's through Christ alone that salvation comes. And then people go, well, then if that's true, then how are people in the Old Testament saved? And we say, well, they were saved in the same way, by grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. This idea of faith, I define faith as the, as the act of belief uh, it's act of belief and trust in the promises of God. So God's made some promises, and now I'm going to make decisions and act as if those promises are going to come true. That's what, that's what faith is. But, but, but that's not what saves you. Your works do not save you. You could say, well, in this story, isn't it his works? If, 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 if Noah did not build the ark, they would have all drowned. Didn't his works save him? Like, his works did not save him. The grace of God saved him. It was by grace that God said, I'm bringing judgment. It was by grace that he said, Noah, go build an ark. It was by grace he said, Noah, now it's time to get into the ark. Right? What's, what's the promises of God in the story of Noah? God, the promises of God are, I'm bringing judgment. I'm going to bring a flood. We're going to look at the, the judgment of the flood next week. But I'm bringing judgment. The other promise is, he, like, Noah, I'm going to save you and your family. That's another promise. And so in order for that to happen, Noah, I need, you're going to build an ark. And then I'm going to bring the animals to you. So there's all of these promises that God is making. He's making all of these promises. And then Noah is making decisions based on those promises. It's faith because he's building a boat because God says rain is coming. That's why it's faith. He's making active decisions based on the promises of God. And so this is why God does not, it's not enough to be moral. It's interesting because people will say, like, well, why isn't that person saved? You know, why doesn't that person go to heaven? They're a good person. In fact, actually, 
that person is a better person than this person I know over here. Why would, why, so why does that person go to heaven? Why does that person go to hell? And you go, we don't go to heaven and hell based on our morality. And don't mistake the difference between morality and faithfulness. There's a big difference between morality and faithfulness. I know lots of people who will help old ladies cross the street but do not believe in the promises of God. I know lots of people who are generous maybe with their money, but they do not believe in the promises of God and act accordingly. It's not, it's not by grace through morality. It's not by grace through good works. It's by grace through trusting in the promises of God. The grace is the promise of God. The faith is then built upon it. And that's what we see in Noah. It's not a New Testament. I mean, we see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. We say by grace through faith. Going back to Genesis, verse 2, chapter 7. Take with you seven pairs of all the clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his Sons' wives and uh, went with him, sorry, with him, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of the clean animals and of the animals that are not clean, of the birds and everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So, did you catch that? This idea of faith. When did Noah get into the ark, start moving people into the ark, moving stuff into the ark? Seven days before the rain came. It's interesting because I think a lot of times when we recount the story, we think the story, the story is told to us. It's like Noah, he feels like the first sort of bit of moisture on his face. He goes, oh, probably time to, to load up these animals. And so I started getting in, and like the pictures we always have, is like he's loading them in as the rain is coming down. But that's not what the story is, isn't it? Or this idea that, that Noah sees the dark clouds in the horizon and goes, oh, here comes the rain, and starts loading up the animals at that point. That's not the story, though, is it? God says, this is by faith. In seven days, it's going to start raining. And it's going to take you, Noah... I'm going to fill in some blanks here. Seven days to load up this boat. This is before forklifts and pallets, right? So it's going to take you seven days to load up this boat, which means that you have to start acting on the promises of God seven days before any sort of rain starts to come. I think a lot of times what we do is we wait to, watch, to see God act to, to, to do our part. God, when you start acting, I'll act. When you start moving, then I'll move. But there's a lot of times where God says, I'm all, well, one, I'm already moving. And two, I move faster than you, so I need to give you a head start. So you need, to like, you need a head start, so you start going, and then I'm going to, don't worry about me, I'm going to catch up. 
But it means that he starts loading these animals as like the sun is still shining. It's one thing to build the ark. No, what are you doing? Oh, I'm building a boat. That's cute. But there's another thing to start loading up all of these animals in preparation before any of the rain ever comes. And what we see here is he says then, he loads them all up, and God says in seven days, it's going to start raining. Now often what we see, especially in California, what do we see? And rightfully so, by the way, what do we see rain as? We see rain as a blessing, don't we? Oh, that it would rain. But specifically in the story of Noah, what is the rain? The rain is the judgment of God. And he says, in seven days, judgment is coming. Now my question to you is, where else in Genesis have we already seen seven days? You're like, "Ah, creation. You go, yeah, we did. And in, in, in the creation story, what came in seven days? Rest. Rest came in seven days. What do we see in the story of Noah? What comes in seven days? Judgment. Because this is what sin has done. In seven days, it's supposed to be rest. But sin has entered the world, and so now in seven days, guess what happens? Judgment. And so we see this, and he says, take these seven pairs of clean animals, which can seem kind of weird. So take the seven pairs of the clean animals, but only two pairs of the unclean. It's because like, he wants more. Like in, in, the, in the world to be, there's going to be more clean animals than unclean animals, so we want them to, uh, to, to mate at a faster rate. Like, no. Spoiler alert, what we're going to find out is that these, these clean animals after the flood are going to be used as a sacrifice. But do you remember, how did the animals come to Noah? You know, all of the stories where we, we see Noah going out and trapping the bears. Is that how it happened? Like, that's not what happened. <laughs> setting a bear trap or, you know, or, you know, trapping the bunnies by setting carrots, just the trail of carrots that lead into the ark, you know. None of that happened. How did it tell us that it happened? God brought all the animals to Noah. He's the one that, that moved and acted and brought them to him. Which means that what? He's bringing these seven pairs to him as well. Which means what? Because what, what's happening to these seven pairs of animals after, the, after the, the flood? They're going to be sacrificed. Which means what? Is that God is the one actually before the judgment is providing the sacrifice for after the judgment. And so we see in the opening pages of the Bible, we see the righteousness of one being applied to the righteousness of many. For the righteousness of many. <sighs> Sounds like Jesus. And that God is the one who's going to provide the sacrifices. Sounds like Jesus. And so the story then goes on then in verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month of that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Let me read that again. In the 600th day, sorry, 600 year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Did you catch that? How are we told the story? What flooded the world? The rain and the rain alone, right? What does Genesis 
711 tell us? It, does, it says actually it was the rain that came down and the waters that were coming up. So it was, the, it was the water bursting forth from the ground and the water coming down from the heaven. Now, last, last fall, I preached through Genesis 1 through 3. Well, it's a one, one, yeah, it's chapters 1 through 3. And I know that you remember all of those sermons. And so drawing on that deep well of your knowledge of last fall of those deep sermons, what happened with the waters in Genesis chapter 1? Remember? They were separated. The waters above were separated from what? The waters below. And what do we see happening in Genesis chapter 7? The waters above are meeting the waters below. And they're converging again. So we see in creation that seven days brings rest. The waters are separated from above and below. And then we come here to to Genesis chapter 7. What's happening? The seventh day is going to bring judgment. And the waters above are going to meet the waters below. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see go fill the earth. Go and fill the earth and multiply In Genesis 7, we see come into the ark. Do not fill the earth. Come into the ark. And it's only going to be two of you. And so what we see in Genesis 1 against Genesis 7 is this creation slash like decreation. This construction versus like destruction. And where a lot of times all we see is like, well, God just, God is going to destroy. Like, but God, so yes, God is going to destroy. But we see this, he created and then he, 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 he's decreating or he, he constructed and now he's, he's destructing, right? Deconstructing. And you go, and this is, this is the story. This is actually why it's so painful sometimes when people come to faith. Like I came to faith and things got worse. I'm going to go, yeah. I became a Christian and things got really difficult. And I go, yeah, yeah. And I don't know who told you that when you became a Christian, things got easier. They were lying to you. Uh, because when you become, yes, yeah, much more difficult. Why? Because now what God is doing inside of you is he's, he's, he's tearing some things down. He's, what it says in the New Testament is that, that you're being recreated, re, remolded and shaped into the image of Jesus. And in order for that to happen, things have to be torn down first. Have you ever done like a home project? Go remodel the kitchen. How does one remodel the kitchen? Do you just buy a new kitchen and then lay it out? No, what do you do? You, you rip out the old kitchen first. Have you ever done a house project? I always think that house project is that first swing of the hammer, right, that does demo work. First swing of the hammer that does demo work, you go, well... We're committed to this project now because if we're committed to the deconstruction, we're committed to the... Con- and, then, and then you rip everything out and you go, oh my, this does not look like a new kitchen. It actually has gotten dramatically worse. Before we used to have running water in a stove, but now we've got none of that. And what are you trusting? You're trusting, you're trusting in, in, in what you have as the plan and the vision of what is to be. And so God... In his creation, his construction, destruction, then sort of this reconstruction. He's got a plan of what you are going to be, of what the, in this case even, what the world's going to be. And so we see this creation, like uncreation, then we're going to see then a recreation. 
It's the story of Noah. It's the story that I live. It's the story that anybody who in Christ lives. Goes on then in verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, uh, and Noah's wife and his three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, and they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind. You remember this Genesis, this language of Genesis 1 and 2, according to its kind, according to its kind. Here we see it again, according to its kind. Every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, all of all the flesh which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut Ham in. And so it was the way we'd understand this because you go, well, here it says that on the very day it started to rain, they got into the ark. So which one was it? On the very day that it rained or seven days before? I go, well, yes. In the same way, when you're, when you're packing for a trip, I would say, so when did you pack? Now for me, probably 15 minutes before I leave. But for, for, for some of you, it's like, well, well, so I started packing, you know, a week before the trip, right? And then I'd pack, and then I unpacked a little bit, but then I repacked to make sure it all fit, and then I weighed it, but then there's some things, so I unpacked, and then I repacked, and I packed, like, okay, so when did you finish packing? Like, well, I actually finished packing the morning that we left. Okay, so it took you seven days to pack, and I go, yeah, all right. And I'd say the same thing with, with, with here, what we see with no, it took them seven days to pack the ark. And then we see here, so it's all packed. It begins to rain. And then what happens? God shuts him in. That's how it reads. And I'm like, every time I hear the story, I didn't see the movie, but I don't know if it's in the movie or not. But it's like, every time I, 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 I picture the story, it's like, I, I picture like Noah, like, I don't know, like some sort of like Clint Eastwood, like surveying the land one last time of like what the earth looks like. And then he shuts the door. Not what we get in the scriptures. The Lord, what does it say? God shut him in. God shut him in. Noah still has not said a word. All he has done is what God has asked him to do. That's it. And God has done everything else. God's the one who's going to bring the judgment. God is the one who's going to send the rain. God is the one who's going to cause the waters to burst up from the ground. God is the one who told them to build the ark. God is the one who gave them the dimensions of the ark. God is the one who brought all of the animals to him. And God is the one who then tells him to get into said ark at that time. And then God is the one who shuts him in. What does Noah do? Noah just does what God has asked him to do. That's it. And he's do, God is doing everything else. And so what we see here in the story is that, it, remember, the rain is judgment. The flood is judgment for the increased corruption and violence upon the land. God is doing something about it. But in the middle of this judgment, what is God doing? In the middle of the judgment, God is offering salvation. 
That's what he always does. That's what he's always done. In the middle of this judgment, he's offering salvation. He's offering salvation. Noah, you should build an ark. He's providing salvation. Noah, it's probably time to get into the ark. Then he is securing salvation for him. Noah, I'm going to shut you up in this ark. And so here we see that God is offering, in the middle of judgment, God is God is offering salvation, God is providing salvation, and then he is securing salvation. So when we get to the New Testament, we feel like, oh, what's Jesus doing? Well, he's doing the exact same thing that God has always done in the middle of judgment. Offering salvation, providing a way for salvation, and securing that salvation. When Jesus meets with uh, Nicodemus, they talk about a lot of things, but one of the things that Jesus tells Nicodemus is he goes, I have not come here to judge. And it's interesting because people will take that verse and say, well, look at this. Jesus didn't come to judge. Who am I to come to judge? Then who, who am I to judge? If Jesus didn't come to judge, who am I to judge? And you go, that's not what Jesus is saying in that text, in, Gen, in uh, John chapter 3. And what he's saying in John chapter 3 is, I didn't come here to judge. Why? Because the world has already been judged. Judgment is coming. They didn't come to judge because judgment's already on its way. I've come to do what God does in the midst of judgment, which is to offer salvation, provide salvation, and then secure you in that salvation. And so we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised that in this judgment that Jesus says that I'm the one who offers it and then I'm going to be the one that provides it for you and then I'm going to be the one that secures you in it. This is why we are saved by grace and not by works. You can't earn your salvation. Why? Because God's the one offering it. He's the one providing for it. And you can't lose your salvation. Why? Because he's the one securing you in it. And we see this as a great, it's not a new, just, just a New Testament truth. I think it's mostly, it's, it's, it's clearest and, and, and boldest in Jesus, but it's not new with him. Because this is what God does. He saves us in the middle of judgment. And so, and so we go, well, what's our, what's our job then? What do we do? You go, well, we do it in that sense. No, it did. We just, we make our decisions based on the promises of God. There's salvation with a capital S, right? I think salvation with a capital S, which is the, you are saved from an eternity without God, which is what we would call hell. And you are saved to an eternity with him, which is what we call heaven. And so capital, salvation, when it says that Jesus saves, we're saying that Jesus saves you from an eternity without him to an eternity with him. That's what, that's what we believe, that's what heaven and hell is. Hell is this, this eternal existence without Jesus and his presence. Heaven is this eternal existence in his presence. And so it says that, that, that we are made righteous so that we can experience the presence of God for eternity. We are made righteous by him and we are saved from hell into heaven, right? It's offered to us by Jesus, provided to us by Jesus, secured us in it by Jesus. So that's a cal- salvation with a capital S, but there's a salvation with a small S too, which is like 
We just need to be saved. And this is probably more the prayer that you pray. God, would you just save me? And maybe even like use some of the same terminology. I feel like I'm drowning. Would you save me? And here's the beautiful thing. God saves you there too. He both offers, provides, and secures it. In days of trouble, you can run to me because I'm, 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 I'm your refuge. In places of need, come to me. I will give you provision. See, what he's saying is that not only do I capital S save you, but I small s save you too. In the day of trouble, in the day of peril, I am offering you salvation. I am providing it for you and I'm going to secure you in it. And so what's your job? Is to make your decisions based in the promises of God. Interestingly enough, ironically enough, is that when we when we try to save ourselves, we actually end up acting unrighteously. Like when we become unfaithful, is because we tried to save ourselves. When we act unrighteously, is because we tried to save ourselves. I mean, I got a long history of things, and you do too, where you're like, well, God, if you're not going to do it, then I will. You know? If you're not going to deliver me, then I'll deliver myself. If you're not going to save me, then I'll save myself. If you're not going to come through for me, then I'll come through for myself. Like a good American would do, right? (laughs) And what happens in those places? We actually, almost always, we end up being unfaithful and unrighteous. Why? Because that's not your job. Your job is not to save yourself. That's what Jesus does. Your job is to make decisions based on his promises. God, I, you, you've promised that you will forgive me. So I'm going to make decisions based on your forgiveness. Good. God, you promised that you would, you would provide the, the, the spiritual, the emotional, the physical, my physical needs. God's like, good. God, there's this circumstance. I just, I want to like, I want to lash out, but I can't. I don't want to. But God, would you defend me? God, I trust that you are my defender. And so I'm going to act accordingly. Good. What God does is God offers you salvation, provides for you salvation, secures you in that salvation. Your job is to act faithfully. If you're not a Christian, you start with the, old, the, the big S salvation, which is Christ has saved you from an eternity of hell into an eternity with him in heaven. But wherever you find yourself in peril today, and you're thinking to yourself, who will save me? Who's going to save me of this violence and corruption? And by the way, whether this is violence of corruption brought on by your hands or by the hands of others or a mixture of both those, is the answer still the same? It's provided, offered, and secured by Jesus. Your job, to be faithful and to act, to, act, to, to trust and to actively trust and believe in God's promises. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the story of Noah. We thank you that you, that you were the one who, who offered, provided, and secured the salvation for him. We thank you that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by your work. We're not saved by our righteousness. We're saved by your righteousness to righteousness. God, wherever we find ourselves this morning in the midst of peril, maybe we're even driving to church this morning thinking to ourselves, who will save me? Who will save me from this violence? Who will save me from this corruption? Jesus, may you, may you do what you have always done, which is to offer, provide, and secure the salvation. And may we be faithful and build our life upon your promises. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.